your copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis and probably just keep your fingers <laughs> in a few places. <clears throat> so we said Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We do wish you Happy Mother's Day. And being a mom is uh, both thrilling and heartbreaking minute by minute sometimes. You know, you have a little kid and he's just the sweetest thing. And then... Um, Mark Twain said, kids are great till they're 12, but when they turn 13, you should put them in a barrel, and when they turn 14, plug the hole. <laughs> so, um, it's, being, being, a, being a mother is tough, because not only you have kids who give you a hard time, usually if you're a mom, you got a, you got a man in your life, and sometimes the dude is great, and sometimes he's not great, sometimes he's greater than others, and just because we're people. But Mother's Day is a wonderful thing, and believe it or not, Mother's Day has only been around since the 20th century. Mother's Day became part of our culture when Woodrow Wilson declared the second Sunday in May to be Mother's Day due to the efforts of a lady from Grafton, West Virginia, named Anna Jarvis. And uh, I used to drive past, uh, it it was her home where the first church that they observed that in West Virginia, our first kid was born in uh, Charlotte, not Charlottesburg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, was also the home of Stonewall Jackson, where he was born too. So, uh, so on, today on Mother's Day, we salute all of you mothers, and we salute, salute those of you who will one day be mothers too. And I wish you every blessing on this day, and hope your kids are able to make you feel blessed and thankful for, uh, for them in your life. Now, the biblical record shows us how central moms are to the story of the gospel, because Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, He entered the world through the means of a woman whose name was Mary. And this woman who became his mother, uh, she was central to the story because without her, without her giving birth to Christ, to die on the cross so that he could rise from the dead and to be be the atoning sacrifice for sin, without the vital function of a woman, there would be no Savior. There would be no redemption for us. Now, there's not going to be any other woman like Mary who will be born and blessed and burdened with being the mother of the Son of God. But still, every woman is a part of God's purpose in this world. And today, I want to take a survey of women in the Bible and just uh, talk about several of them. Now, there are so many women in the Bible that I could probably start in Genesis and just go until Father's Day. But I know some of you have reservations to go and eat lunch somewhere, or you're going to try to beat the crowd to the Chinese buffet, or you're going to take your mom to mother to McDonald's <laughs> or some great place like that. And so I just want to take five women from the Bible and try to deal with these things as quickly as I can. Somebody tell me the correct time. 11.01. So I'm just going to set that for right there. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, All these women we're going to talk about today, named in the Bible, lived in a world that's very different from ours as far as the culture. It's an ancient world. But their culture, just like our culture, is polluted by sin. Now, this seems like an oversimplification, but it is is true. As sure as the sun is coming up in the uh, east and sets in the west, what I'm about to say to you is true. 
Every problem in our society and world is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. Every single problem. Sometimes people don't like that because it's an oversimplification. But it's true. Every single problem in our society is the result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Every problem stems from there. Now I'm going to read you a a bit of a confession of faith. This is uh, the London Confession of Faith from 1689, and it's chapter 6, paragraphs 2 through 5. And listen to what these uh, British Baptist preachers said. It's a summary of what the Bible teaches. Our first parents, by their sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, and all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in the faculties and parts of soul and body. That means not only do we, are we, do we, did they enter a state of spiritual death, but also a corruption of our affections and our thoughts and our ambitions. They go on to say that Adam and Eve being the root, and by God's appointment they stood in the room instead of all mankind, that the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted the nature conveyed, they, by corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin. And by nature, children of wrath, servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made op, made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to do to all evil, do, all, do precede all actual transgressions. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated, so that those who are saved, those who are born again, that corrupted fallen nature is still within you, so that's why you have that great conflict. Right? So, I'm going to be very honest with you this morning. On my, way to, on my way driving here in my truck this morning, I thought, you know, Terry, why don't you just go fishing? Because my fly rod's in there. Uh, I don't have any waders in there, but you know, I just felt kind of out of sorts. So I thought, you know, just hang them all. You know, they miss church. Why can't you? <laughs> so within you is this redeemed person, but also this fallen person who does the things they shouldn't do. So this, this corruption has ascended upon us, and there's this conflict inside of us. And so all the problems with our culture and world stem from the fall of Adam and Eve. And that condition still persists in us, is that we still want to do sins, even though we have become Christians, even though we have put our faith in Christ, even though we've been regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit, we still want to do sins because that fallen, that corruption is still present. The two natures that exist within us. Now, that has to do with the five women we're going to talk about this morning. These five women, all right? The first woman I want to talk to you about is the mother of us all, Eve. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, that God made man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female. God created a man and God created a woman and he gave them to each other. 
And they lived in a state of innocence, a state of uprightness, a state of perfection until they violated God's law. God said there was one tree they should not eat of, and they ate of that tree, and they brought upon themselves death and corruption. But our dear mother Eve, her downfall was that she fooled herself. When she encountered Satan in the garden, this talking serpent, she thought she could handle him. She thought she could do something beyond her power. She fooled herself by thinking she could go toe-to-toe with old smutty face himself. But you can't. You can't depend on your own reasoning or your own knowledge. You have to depend on what God's Word said. Jesus, our Lord, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, tempted by Satan, Satan came to him and tempted him in three ways. Did Jesus use philosophical arguments to defeat Satan? Did he try to trick him with with double talk or Christianese? No, he did not. What our Lord and Savior Jesus did was he replied, he, he replied, he replied with and depended on the word of God. The simplicity of God's word. When Eve came to Satan, Satan said, Hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And she said, Yes. And and she added something to God's command. She said, He even said we shouldn't touch it. And in that moment, Satan, seeing that she was so willing to adjust God's word, he leaps on that with both feet and tricks her. He gets her to think that God is her oppressor. That God is oppose her, that God is keeping her down. And that's why she eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. My friends, what you and I need to do is devote ourselves to obeying God's plain word. Just do what God says. When Satan, when temptations come, obey God's word. She fooled herself. She was fooled by Satan because he got her to think that God was oppressing her. Now, listen, you have to... The more heartache you have in life, the more often you're going to think that very thing. God is doing me a disservice. God's not doing right by me. God's not blessing me in this way. God's not taking care of these problems. And we'll begin to think we'll get a negative perspective of God because that's what happened to Eve. The serpent said, God knows that if you eat of that tree, if you eat of that fruit, he knows you'll become a God too. And God wants to keep you back from that. God is not keeping you back from it. God's ways are the right and true ways. God was not oppressing her. God was actually protecting her. But that's what Satan does. He tries to get us to see God through the wrong lens from the the wrong perspective. And then in Genesis chapter number 3, when Eve commits this horrible sin against the Lord, not only does she sin... She's fooled by herself. She's fooled by Satan. We find that she's also forgiven by God's grace because God, the merciful Father, He comes to them and He seeks for them. The Bible says that Adam and Eve, when they ate of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. They'd they'd existed in that state of nakedness for we don't know how long. But the minute they disobeyed God, They were conscious of their own nakedness and they were ashamed. 
And when they were ashamed, they had to do something about it. They went into the garden, and the Bible says they sewed leaves together, fig leaves together. One, one guy asked an old preacher, why did they use fig leaves? And he said, because they were big. <laughs> they made themselves aprons to cover themselves, to cover their, their shameful parts, you might say. And then when they heard God's voice coming down the cool of the day to talk with them and to fellowship with them as he had so often, they heard the voice of God. And what did they do? Did they run to God or did they flee from God? They hid themselves from God. Because when sin begins to overtake your life, the first thing you begin to do is to pull back from God. You hide from him. There are people, when they, when they get sin in their lives, they stop coming to church. Because when they come to church, the light of the gospel is here. And they feel condemned because of their sinfulness. But what does God do? God comes and seeks them out. You hide from God, but God seeks for you. Sin says, run from God. Sin says, God does not care about you any longer. Sin says, don't go close to him. Don't go near to him. He's a consuming fire. He'll destroy you. But God says, if you come to me, I'll take care of that sin. I'll take care of that guilt. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll make you holy and clean again. Come to him. Sin pushes us from God. Draws us away. Now, Sometimes there will be a struggle. We think about coming to God. And the struggle is this. The struggle is sometimes, will God have me back? Have you ever really messed up a relationship so much you thought it'll never be restored? It'll never be fixed? You ever had that kind of thing happen to you? And we think that way about God. Will God have me back? Well, the answer is God will have you back. We see this in, in this text of Scripture. The Eve's sin causes her to flee from God. And God comes to her, and even though she deflects and, and she, she twists and tries to get out of responsibility, God is still willing to have her for his own. And then there'll be another struggle you may have in your mind. You'll think to yourself, should I really come to God? Do I really need to come to God? You do need to come to God. Jesus came down from heaven because sinners need a Savior, because they need a mediator. They need someone to love them and take them in, and that's Jesus Christ. One thing I've come to know as I've studied the Bible these, these years is that God's grace is better than I can even understand. God's grace is deeper than I can fathom the grace and mercy of God. So we have our dear first mother, Eve. The second lady I want to talk to you about is, we don't know her name. We're just going to call her Mrs. Noah. We can read about her in Genesis chapters 6 and 7. The story of Noah, what a fascinating story. The earth, Genesis chapter 6 says, every thought of every person is only evil continually. The imaginations of, the, of man's hearts are all bad. Man, mankind is doing violence in epic proportions. 
And God, in his mercy, lets this rock on for like 1,800 years. But then God decides he's had enough. He's going to judge the world. And the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some translations, some guys say it should be translated, Noah was found of grace by the eyes of the Lord. There's Noah. And God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy mankind. I'm going to destroy everything that has breath within it. I'm going to, I'm going to root man out of, the, out of the earth. And God says to Noah, but I want you to build an ark, to build a box. And he gives him the dimensions of it. And Noah begins to build it. If you look through all the, chrono- the chronology there and all the dates, if you want to, you'll find out that Noah started building the ark before he was married and before he had kids. Now, this is an interesting thing to me. Here's this guy, a one-man show. Uh, there's, a, there's an old West Virginia preacher named B.R. Lakin. Now, B.R. Lakin's a nut, okay? What is he? Like all West Virginians. <laughs> B.R. Lakin believed that everything we have today as far as technology, existed in Noah's day. Isn't that a thing to think about? So he says they had modern equipment. (laughs) They had track hoes and chainsaws and sawmills, a whole shooting match. Now, I don't know what he bases it on exactly, but maybe Ecclesiastes were what, what is has been already. But Noah begins to build this box all by himself. And this woman marries him at some point. And they have children together. This lady sees him in his blind faith in God, his his obedience, and she decides, I'm going to tie up with this guy. He believes in something. He's trying to do what God says. And he's living and behaving in a way that's opposite of everybody else. And so she marries him. And she has three sons with him, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. She followed him into his mission as he is serving God. As as he's trying to fulfill God's calling on his life, she follows him. She supports him in it. Even though the people around them may have looked at him weird, and maybe gave him a, a difficult time, the Bible doesn't tell us, but she supported him. And then when the ark was finished... And God said, get in that ark. She went into the ark. Now, it's funny. The ark was not a floating paradise. It was a floating barn. A floating barn. Now, I've been down to Ken Ham's thing in uh, in Ohio, or Kentucky, where was that? It's right there at the Ohio-Kentucky border. I think it's in Kentucky. I've been to that Noah's Ark. You guys ever been to Noah's Ark down there, Ken Ham's thing, Answers in Genesis? I've been down there. One of the most striking things about that thing to me was they had this little diagram of how they think that they probably got rid of all the manure for the, for the animals. In my whole life as a Christian, I never really thought about that. Ken Ham says there are 18,000 animals on the ark. And they had food for them. 
And if they're eating, if it comes in this end, it's got to go out where? 18,000 animals worth. Well, you can't have that stuff laying around, right? And they had worked out how they thought that they disposed of it. I remember, I, I looked at this little graphic they had, and I thought, man, that job must have stunk. <laughs> I used to work on a horse ranch, and we, we had to pick up horse donuts all the time. It was no fun. I didn't care for it at all. But any of that, any of that place full of animals and everything that goes along with it, there she went with her husband, following him. Wherever God is leading him, she went along with him. And the Bible tells us that she took her kids on there too. The day that they were supposed to enter into the ark, Noah and his wife entered and so did their sons and their wives. Why did they do that? I think that those boys honored their dad and followed their dad into the ark because their mother did. They didn't have a mother who was antagonistic to God's plan for their life. They didn't have a mother who was against Christianity or against following God or against walking by faith. They had a mother who probably didn't have all the answers. I'm not saying she had the best attitude all the time, but overall, she followed her husband. Now, friends, I want you to know that kind of thing trickles down. I can't see her in my mind's eye mocking his work or his message, but she follows him. Now, there seem, there, it's interesting the way this reads in the scriptures. The Noah and his wife went on, and then the sons and their wives went on afterwards. There's not a long delay between there because it all happens in the same day. But I wonder if it surprised her to see those boys walk onto the ark. To see them follow on. Because you always had that big question mark in your mind, don't you? About your kids. Are my kids going to follow the path that I've walked? Are they going to make Jesus the Lord of their life? Are they going to follow along? And you try to set them a good example. You try to pray for them. You tell them the truth. You tell them the gospel. You show them a good example. And you wonder, are they going to follow that path? And sometimes you're not really sure that they are going to follow that path. Sometimes they go the long way around the barn, my dad would say. But then they got on the ark. I can see Mrs. Noah and Mr. Noah hand in hand walking up the ramp into the ark. And then see him standing there kind of taking in. And then turning around at the gate, at the, at the ramp, and looking back one last time as the rains begin to fall. And they see boy one. They see Shem and his wife come up and park their car, (laughs) walk up the ramp. A little bit later, they see Ham's broken down Ford, (laughs) rolling up there and up the ramp. And then Japheth in his Maserati pulls up there. Speaker's thumping, thumpity, thumpity, thumpity. And he hops out, 
with this old lady. And they come easing up on them. In my mind, I can just, I wonder if it surprised them to see that in the last moment, in the last day, they came on. I wonder if it surprised her to see that. Now, no doubt when the flood came, she lost people she cared about in the flood. But her faith and her love were not downward, they were upward. She loved Noah. I'm just presuming that she loved God too, where she came to know him and love him as Noah did as they served him together for 120 years. Her love and faith were upward, not downward. And I want to ask you a question. Where is your faith and love aimed? Is your faith and love just completely consumed with the things of this world? Or is your faith and love consumed with Christ and his heavenly kingdom? Now, the third lady I want to talk about is Sister Sarah from Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Sarah begins to follow Abram. She's going along with him. They have a nice place they live. And Genesis chapter 12 says, The Lord said to Abraham, I want you to leave town, leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to bless you big time when you get there. Abram takes off following the Lord. And along with him goes his precious wife. Genesis 12, 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham worships God there. This is a good man. This is a man who's hearing the voice of God and following God by faith. And if a, when a woman is married to a good man, it's a good thing, right? But good men don't always make the best choices, do they? They don't make the best choices. And we see Abram's first bad choice in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 10, where the Bible says, in a time of famine... My Schofield Reference Bible says that that Abram forsakes the land of promise in famine. Circumstances caused him to leave the place God had told him to go. He was in the right place. He was where God wanted him to be, but he left it because of bad times. Bad times. Sometimes bad times, tough times make us want to leave a place. Now, when you're the boss and you've got to make decisions, Abram's the head of the family. He decides, well, we can't hang out here. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. So we have to, we have to move. And the Bible says in 12.10 that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. The word sojourn means to dwell temporarily. He went down there to live there for a little while because the famine was severe in the land. But when he got to Egypt, he makes another bad, bad choice. It's his wife is so beautiful that he tells her, when we get down here to Egypt, you tell the Egyptians that you're my sister and not my wife. This is a very unusual thing. How many of you sisters, how many of you ladies, if your husband said, don't tell anybody you're my wife, would be tickled by that? How many of you would tickle him with the knuckles of your fist? (laughs) 
tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Here we have a good man, a man who's, who is full of faith, who's making a bad choices. He makes one bad choice. He makes a second bad choice because good men often do stupid stuff. And the Bible tells us here that Pharaoh, when he saw how pretty she was, and he found out that she was a sister and not his wife, that Pharaoh grabbed her for his own. Look at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram, the Pharaoh, because he was getting Abram's sister, he thought. This is the dowry, you might say. He ponies up and says, this girl's worth a lot of dough. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Think about this. She puts her faith in her husband, you know, okay, I want you to tell him you're my sister. And she's like, I don't think this is a good idea. Have you ever said that to your husband? I don't think this is a good idea. Well, what does he say to you? Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. I know. Because women just worry. Just relax. It's going to be okay. But then she's like, okay. maybe In in her mind, I can see her saying, maybe he does know. Maybe he does know something I don't know. So there they are. They go into town. Next thing she knows, some guys are whistling at her, making eyes at her. And he says, that's my sister. And boom. When they grab her and start to take her away, how do you think she felt? What's going through her mind as she sees her future changing drastically? Going with these idolatrous pagan people? Well, the Lord gets her out of it. The Bible says that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. So she gets him out of it. He gives her back. And he says, what are you, he says, Pharaoh says to Abram, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Take your wife and go. Now, this is interesting to me is that Sarah went back to Abraham. Sometimes a man will make so many bad choices or do something big, big like that. And you may say, well, I'm done with you, buddy. I'm not, I'm not going to take this from you. But she, she goes back to him. And they go on and live together. Now, men, husbands, are going to do dumb stuff. Now, what's interesting here is that Abram, he does this same thing again 22 years later. 22 years later, he, again, he says, look, dear, don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. It's in Genesis chapter 20. But just because your, your man does dumb stuff doesn't mean you have to bail out on him. You may want to. You may have reason to. But she doesn't do it. Now, let's reverse the roles. What about when the wife does something dumb? 
Tom Billings says, keep quiet. Tom Billings is a wise man. <laughs> and humble. <laughs> and doomed. <laughs> now, Sarah, she has her own problems. Because after years of infertility, she finally comes to a place where she says to Abram, Look, honey, we're not having a kid like we're supposed to. So why don't you take Hagar, my handmaid, go into her, and I'll have a child by her. And that causes no end of problems and drama in the family. Does Abraham get rid of her? No. People make bad choices. People make bad choices sometimes. Now the fourth thing I want to say to you, well, I get this other part of this. I don't know if I should say this or not. Well, okay. Now, Abram and Sarah, they, they do a lot together. They see a lot of things together. And Sarah makes her way into the hall of faith. Now, look at Hebrews chapter number 11. And I want you to, to see what God says here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 11. You have Abraham in verse 8. And then you have Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the, in, the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. What is she getting in the hall of faith for? She's getting in the hall of faith for doing something that's just as normal for married people as falling off a log. Is she continues, even after she was no longer able to have children, she continues to have sex with her husband. In faith. She's strengthened and is able to conceive. Now, I want to say this to you, plainly. Sex between a husband and wife is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. When I was a kid growing up, you know, all I ever heard about sex was, don't. Don't have sex. Don't have sex. Don't have sex. Then I got married. And what do you got to do? Well, then you have sex. All those years, nobody, nobody told me that, nobody showed me the right perspective of that. Here we have Sarah getting into the hall of faith because she yields her body to her husband in an act of faith and dependence on God. Sex is good. Now, I have other things to say about this. Marriages need sexual relations. If Abraham and Sarah are having sex as a married couple and it's a blessing to them, so should you who are being married. One of my friends in Kansas one time, he said, he said, uh, he said a lot of problems in marriages can be solved by warm intimacy between a husband and a wife. 
because the absence of it causes problems in a family. I think that's true. If you're not having sex, if you're married and you're not having sex, I want you to know that's bad. It's bad. Now, there there are three things that would, three reasons not to do that. Number one is if you have medical problems or physical problems. Sometimes you have difficulties. The bodies we have, they wind down. They don't always work the right way. You have physical problems. The second one is spiritual problems. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul tells the churches at the church of Corinth, he says, you guys should not be abstaining from intercourse unless you're having a spiritual fast of some kind. He says, but don't let that fast last too long. Otherwise, Satan will get the advantage of you and you'll seek soulless in the arms of someone else. You guys remember that country song? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces, that kind of thing. Not, I, I see your business. Let's move past this point. Almost. Both the man and the woman need that kind of relationship. They need it. You need it. There's two reasons, two main enemies to sexual intimacy in marriage. Two main reasons. One is fatigue. Is tired. Many women both get tired. Valerie and I, we read this book uh, several years ago by a man named Kevin Lehman. And in the book, he said, one of the reasons why people don't have intimacy is because they're too pooped to whoop. (laughs) Fatigue. The second one is, is hurt feelings. Hurt feelings. I've been married to Valerie for 25 years, and, I've, and I hurt her feelings. Who knows how many times I've hurt her feelings? Never on purpose. <laughs> Not often on purpose. <laughs> hurt feelings. Sometimes she hurts my feelings. And when you have hurt feelings between each other, and you... You know, you guys know, you ever go put your arm around your wife and pull her close to you? And you can feel that she is, she's not warm putty in your hands. She's a block of ice. Because of something you did or said or didn't do or say. You know? Hurt feelings. Now, you got to work through that stuff together. you got to talk about stuff like that. You have to spend time with each other. Now, let me say this while I'm moving along. If you're here and you're not, if you're not married, you should not be having sex at all. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. That's what the Bible says. Premarital sex is a sin. Extramarital sex is a sin. That means sex before you're married is a sin. And sex with someone other than the person you're married to is a sin. You, shouldn't, you, should, you should stop doing that. Now, we're people, we're humans, we err, we, we sin. If you're in the midst of doing these kind of things, you should stop doing it. Especially if you're a Christian. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, do not let fornication be named among you at all. Don't do it. 
Now let's talk about a fourth lady, Rebecca, in Genesis 25 and 27. Now this lady, Rebecca, is, is quite interesting to me because we find her in, in two shining moments in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 25, when she becomes the wife of Isaac, she's a woman with incredible, with incredible work ethic. She's a very faith-filled person. She's very diligent. She's incredible in Genesis chapter 25. But then in Genesis chapter 27, after she's been married to Isaac for about 40 years, we find her as a very different person. She becomes a scheming liar. Because when she, had, when she gave birth to her two sons, Jacob and Esau, she had a prophecy from God that said, the younger is going to serve The older is going to serve the younger. There's two nations here. And she had this promise that the older will be submissive to the younger son, which was counterintuitive to the culture. And she knows this prophecy from God that Jacob is the chosen one. He's going to receive the firstborn spot. But when Isaac, her husband, He loses his sight, and he feels like he's not long for this world. He calls in his two sons, Esau and Jacob. Actually, he just calls Esau, and he says, Esau, I'm going to give you the final blessing. I'm going to give you the birthright blessing. I want you to go out and kill me a deer and cook it up and come back and give it to me, and then I'm going to give you the blessing. Rebecca, she hears it. She hears what Isaac is going to do. And in spite of the promise she has from God, what does she do? She goes and gets Jacob and says, quick, go kill a goat. Cook it up. And she goes and gets Esau's clothes and puts it on Jacob. And she takes the the skins of animals and puts it on Jacob's neck and his arms. And she says, now go in and tell your dad that you're Esau and get that blessing. Go in there and deceive your father. If he says to you, it's the voice of Jacob, but it's Esau's smell or Esau's feel, you say, it's me, Esau. You lie to your dad. And that's what happens. Jacob goes in there and he deceives his father. His father is, is, says, says, this is the voice of Jacob, but this feels like Esau, this smells like Esau, and this is the stuff that Esau would make for me. And he blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. Then when Esau comes in and he finds out there is no more blessing for him, Esau is angry and he says, I'm going to kill my brother. What she does is she schemes and manipulates and she makes the family, she creates a family division that lasts for years. Lasts for years. Instead of trusting God, she takes matters into her own hands. This is something you and I have to be so careful about, is helping God out. Helping God out. The other night, something happened, and I was, I was, well, I was worried about it. And I was, up, I was up in the night, I was thinking about this situation, and I thought, well, 
if I, if, I can just, if I can just say this and do this, then this will happen, and then that will force this conversation, and then I know I can handle that conversation, I can handle all those counter-arguments, and then I can push it back this way, and then I can win the day. Win the day. So I went to sleep with absolute confidence in myself. <laughs> Woke up the next morning. Now the first thing I had done was I had said, Lord, I need you to help me with this. And then I tried to figure out how I could make it happen. The next morning, I got up. Wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. Different issues at play. And I thought, you know, I guess God, God, God had it under control. And I didn't have to do all that sneaky stuff. Rebecca tries to do sneaky stuff. And my friends, I want you to listen to something. Trusting God with people and situations often means just taking your hands off and letting God take care of it. Dan Chamberlain, a pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he said, like he said this. He said, faith sometimes means doing nothing. If you trust God with it, what do you do? You do nothing. You leave it in God's hands. You leave it in God's hands. Schemes can backfire. And catch you. But trusting God never backfires. I've never been sorry one second that I trusted God with a situation or a problem. I've never been sorry. But I have been sorry a hundred times that I did something that didn't need to be doing, didn't need to be done. Anytime you have to lie, connive, or use trickery to get something done, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong. Now let's talk about one last lady. All in favor of one more, say amen. Wow. I appreciate that because a lot of you people said amen. So this is going to take about an hour. <laughs> Genesis chapter 39. Another lady whose name we don't know, but I'm sure it's tucked away out there somewhere in the annals of history or in a theological journal. But this lady is the wife of Potiphar. The wife of Potiphar. Joseph, the servant of the Lord, is working in her house. He's her husband's number two guy. She's his right-hand man. And when she sees this young man, he's about, he's probably 20 or so years old. Rugged, nomad kind of a fellow. Working for Potiphar. Very smart. Potiphar trusts him. The Bible says that Joseph was so trusted by Potiphar that the only thing that Potiphar withheld from Joseph was his wife. So if Potiphar had a fishing boat, 
Joseph could use it. If Potiphar had a private jet, Joseph could use it. If Potiphar had whatever it was, Joseph could use it. The only thing Joseph was not allowed to have any dealings with was Potiphar's wife. The Bible says that Joseph's governance of Potiphar's household and affairs was so, was so great that Potiphar, all he ever thought about was the food in front of him. Because Potiphar took it, Potiphar, because Joseph took care of everything for Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife, day by day, she saw Joseph in the house. And she started making advances. She started coming on to him. They'd be alone working in the corner of the house. Looks like the Bible ind- indicates this. That she would say, hey, there's nobody around. It's just you and me. Why don't we slip back here to the back? Don't you want to hold me? Don't you want to feel my flesh? Day by day, she, she pressured him, putting the moves on him, trying to lure him into her arms. And Joseph resisted. Yeah, since, we, since we know Joseph is a... They say that there's 316 types of Christ in the life of Joseph. Joseph is a very upright man. And I'm sure Joseph tried to avoid her at all costs. But she keeps coming back around. She wants to commit adultery with Joseph. Now, adultery is an abomination. Proverbs says that a person who commits adultery gets themselves a wound or a blot that cannot be wiped away. It's hard to live that down. I was pastoring in Texas, and I was out knocking doors. I was way out in the country, way out in the country, 10 miles or so, knocking on people's doors, talking to them about the Lord. I knock on the door. A lady comes to the door. Actually, it was a man. came to the door, and he said, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm from Northside Baptist Church down here on the corner of Shady Grove and 963. And he said, isn't that the church where the pastor ran off with the piano player? Now, that was true. But it had also happened 35 years earlier. Talk about don't forget. I mean, that church had had 30 pastors since then. (laughs) Isn't that the church? And I said, Yep. Well, I would never go to a church where something like that was going on. And I said, it ain't going on anymore. (laughs) We don't even have a piano player. (laughs) We nipped that in the bud. (laughs) But that, that just, it was just looming out there. It's a big deal. Now, our world and culture minimizes it and poo-poos it, but the Bible is clear about it. Now, you're going to be tempted. Temptations are going to come your way. But Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7, they all just drill it down. 
nails it down. Avoid adultery at all cost. The horrors of adultery, the, the collateral damage is so incredible. Don't do it. Avoid adultery by the following. Honor your vows that you made when you got married. To keep yourself to that one person and no other. Honor your vows. Keep your word. Be aware that you are capable of it. Be aware that it could happen to you. The minute you say, oh, it could never happen to me, you gotta watch your you gotta watch yourself. You gotta watch yourself. Be aware that you are capable of it. Protect your relationship with the person you're married to. Protect it by being merciful with them. Don't hold grudges towards them. Speak up about stuff, problems. I created a proverb. You guys want to hear it? Pull the weed before you have to pull the weeds. Isn't that good? On the count of three, everybody say good one, Pastor. You ready? One, two, three. Wow. Don't be vain like me. <laughs> You got to get this. You got to get that little stuff. You got to get them before there's a bunch of them. Little things grow into big things. One things become two things, and before you know it, if you're this, this is how it works with me because I'm I'm the worst example. Is is here, Valerie and I? We we were married a long time, and um, what I do is I just let stuff build up, right? Little things. I won't, if she does something irritates me, I won't say anything. Second thing, I won't say anything. Third thing, I won't say anything. What I like to do is wait until I got about 100 things to accuse her of. Once I got a big pile of darts to hurl, well, I start hurling them. And I hurl them all at the same time. It'll be, it'll be something very small, but what I do is I hit the nuclear button. Boom! And we have a huge blow-up. When you have a huge blow-up, what happens? I say things I can't take back. She says things she can't take back. And you have, you have a massive problem. You've got to work with these things while they're smaller. If along the way, if I would just say, Valerie, you know, a lot of times it's misunderstanding. Valerie, why did you do that? Why did you say it to me just now? I don't understand why you did that. Instead of just saying that, I just go, oh, she did it again. Then I go along and, oh, she did another one. Now, I got a bad memory about some stuff. But I keep real good track of wrongs done to me. You guys ever seen that movie, uh, The Quiet Man with John Wayne and Victor McLaughlin? Victor McLaughlin, he has this guy who walks around with him all the time everywhere he goes. And he'll say, Oi, take out your book. Write it down. And the guy will write it down. He's keeping a list of all the grievances against him. Don't do that. Work these things out while you can. Work them out while they're small. 
Avoid adultery by learning from other people's sorrows. Look at, look at what happens to other people's lives. Most of all, obey and love Christ. Put Christ on the, on the throne of your life and say, I'm going to honor him with my life, with my marriage. I'm not going to become an adulterer or an adulteress. It's a horrible evil. It's a horrible evil. Now let's pray together. Now I put down here in my notes to say something I forgot to say at the front. Today I want to take a survey of some women in the Bible, and when we get to Father's Day, I'll do the same for the men, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying that at the beginning. Now we know. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us now as we look at these, these characters in Scripture. These are not just characters. These are real people. Father, help us to learn from their lives and their situations. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to follow the good examples and shun the bad. Help us to yield ourselves to you, to yield our hearts to you, to love you and serve you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon the ladies here today who are moms. I pray that you would help them and bless them, Lord. Being a mom is such such an amazing thing caring for these children, teaching them every single thing they got to know, and then, you know, it's a well-said well proverb that your children don't thank you when they're 15, they, or appreciate you when they're 15, they wait until they're 40, and then that's when they begin to understand, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help these dear ladies to 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 feel appreciated by their children and by their husbands. And I pray you bless them. And Lord, I know every mom here carries the burden in their heart. If they're a Christian lady, concerned about their children's eternal souls. And I pray, Lord, that you would save their kids. That one by one, they would travel to the cross and meet Christ. And Lord, even if after we've gone on to glory, our children are still on this earth, they could still come to Christ. I pray that you would draw them to your side. That you would send forth from heaven the Holy Spirit in that regenerating way, Lord. The Spirit who cannot be stopped by walls or bars. There's no barrier that the Holy Spirit cannot overcome. I pray that you would touch their hearts and open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. They will believe on Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and glorious name. Amen.